Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel on the New Books feed. Today I have Andrew Lay. Um, Andrew is a Shadow Minister for Treasury and Charities and Federal Minister for Fenner in the Australian Parliament. Uh, prior to being elected in 2010, Andrew was a professor of economics at the Australian National University. He holds a PhD in public policy from Harvard, having graduated from the University of Sydney with first class honors in arts and law. Andrew is a fellow of the, the Australian Academy of Social Sciences and a past recipient of the Young Economist Award, a prize given every two years by the Economic Society of Australia to the best economist under 40. This is pretty impressive. His books include Disconnected, Battlers and Billionaires, The Economics of Just About Everything, The Lux of Politics, Choosing Openness, Why Global Engagement is Best for Australia, today's book, Randomistas, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World, which is coming, or which came out in 2018 um, from Yale University Press, and Innovation Inequality, How to Create a Future that is More Star Trek Than Terminator. Andrew is a keen marathon runner and hosts a podcast entitled The Good Life, Andrew Lay in Conversation, which is available on Apple Podcasts. Um, so, Andrew, welcome to the show. If you want to start by telling us where you came up with this uh, idea for your book and um, filling in any details that uh, your biography did not cover, things that you think are important about you as a researcher that the audience might like to know about, that would be great. Well, thanks, Sydney, for a most uh, generous introduction and for the chance to talk about randomised trials, which uh, I'll grab any day of the week. Uh, to the extent that I've got one big idea about social policy, it's the notion that we ought to be uh, optimistic about tackling the big challenges, whether that is gaps between uh, minority and majority groups, achieving full employment, uh, reducing the scourge of chronic illness, but scientific and critical about how we go about getting there. Uh, we need to recognise that many of the ideas that look really promising coming out of the lab turn out not to work uh, in reality. So only one out of 10 cancer drugs uh, makes it all the way through stage one, two, three trials uh, into, um, into the market. Uh, and the same is true when Rigorous evaluations are done of ideas that come about in the tech sector uh, or notions in education. Uh, so I think we need to build a better feedback loop. And for me, randomised trials are, uh, are doing that. It's the way in which we, uh, we test new drugs uh, and increasingly it, they're being rolled out through uh, development economics. The Nobel Prize this year uh, went to three development economists who have been pioneering randomised trials uh, as a way of uh, better assisting people in low-income countries to raise their living standards. Wonderful. So um, just to step back a little bit, because I'm very excited about random controls trials. Um, I know a lot of economists are, a lot of people all over the sciences are quite excited. But um, for our listeners, in case people aren't um, up to date, what exactly is an RCT or a randomized control trial? And can you explain why it is that they're so promising? Sure. Well, let's use an example that's on everyone's minds right now, uh, testing potential new vaccines for coronavirus. 
Uh, we want to make sure that these vaccines work before we roll them out to the population at large. So as good ideas come out of the laboratory, uh, they're being administered to people uh, with by the toss of a coin. Heads, you get the, uh, the, the vaccine that we think is going to work. Uh, tails, uh, you get uh, a, a salt solution, essentially uh, uh, an, a nothing drug, a placebo. Uh, and then we look to see uh, whether those the infection rates are different across those two groups. Uh, this is how we uh, tested uh, the polio vaccine in 1954. Uh, we randomly injected 600,000 American children with either polio vaccine or salt water. Uh, it worked, and the next year, uh, immunisation of all American children began. Uh, it's how we tested streptomycin, uh, one of the treatments that uh, helped massively reduce the death toll from tuberculosis in the 1940s. Uh, and increasingly, uh, if you want to get public funding for a new drug in, the, in an advanced country, uh, you need to have a randomised trial behind it uh, to show that the drug really works. Okay, so if I'm understanding this right for our audience, essentially for an RCT to work, you take a group of people who are willing volunteers, you randomly split them up between two groups. The point of the randomness is that there can be no differences between or systemic differences between the two groups because there's nothing predicting which group they're in versus the other. And use one group as a counterfactual to another group. Um, sorry, I'm going over this a couple of times because when I learned it, it was it took me a couple of tries, but I think it's one of like the most powerful ideas that there is out there, which is why I decided to uh, read Andrew's book and uh, bring it to you. But um, so you highlighted the polio uh, rollout. Um, your book is actually largely, I highly recommend people read it. It's largely a, um, a collection of RCT results. Um, do you have a couple favorites you'd like to highlight? Well, there's some that uh, I use in my own life. Uh, I used to take a daily multivitamin tablet until I read a synthesis of randomized trials, uh, which showed for otherwise healthy people multivitamin tablets don't make you live any longer. I used to take a daily fish oil tablet and then I read a randomised trial showing that uh, that doesn't uh, seem to do anything for your heart. Uh, when I finish a marathon, I put on a pair of uh, compression socks because a nice randomised trial of marathon runners showed that those randomly assigned to wear compression socks recovered faster than those who didn't get the compression socks. And when I've got to take a Band-Aid off the skin of one of my three boys, uh, I use the fast method rather than the slow method, uh, buoyed by a randomised trial at uh, James Cook University that showed that the amount of pain you experience when a Band-Aid is removed fast is less than when it's removed slowly. That's actually quite interesting. I, when I read that, I actually decided that the next time I had to put on a Band-Aid, I'm going to try it on myself, or maybe I'll flip a coin and try it on myself <laughs> and see if it works. Um, Self-experimentation has a long history, Sydney, and, and a distinguished yes. one at that. Yes. Speaking of that, um, would you tell us about the case of scurvy? I found that to be a particularly enlightening opening. Uh, so scurvy was uh, was the result of a uh, very young naval surgeon, James Lind, uh, who was faced with a whole range of theories as to what might work to tackle scurvy. Uh, vinegar, salt water, uh, guts, which is uh, about as bad as it sounds, uh, and the one we know that works, citrus. Uh, he applied it to uh, a dozen men, uh, separated into pairs, and then looked to see what the effect was upon them. Uh, and it turned out that those who got citrus uh, did far better. Uh, and that was uh, part of the reason that uh, the British Navy 
uh, adopted uh, citrus, uh, taking a whole lot of barrels of citrus onto each of its ships. Uh, Indeed, part of the reason that uh, Nelson won the Battle of Trafalgar was that the uh, British fleet was uh, not affected by scurvy, whereas the French and Spanish fleets were. So you're telling me that we could put a picture of a surgeon and some scurvy references at Trafalgar Square instead of Nelson and HMS Victory? Absolutely, absolutely. The (laughs) randomisters are uh, are behind a whole lot of uh, of important breakthroughs. Uh, And indeed, when when we're looking at uh, saving lives today, uh, an important randomised trial looked at whether or not it was better to ask people to pay a small amount for an anti-malarial bed net. There'd been a theory that if people didn't pay for them, then they wouldn't use them. Uh, But large-scale randomised trials across half a dozen African countries uh, showed conclusively that free bed nets had the same take-up. It were just as likely to be used and had much higher take-up. And so bed nets are now distributed free rather than for a a modest co-payment. Again, randomisters saving lives. That's actually fascinating. Um, So let's talk about, obviously, every good thing has at least some drawbacks. So the first thing to talk about is, could you go over the placebo effects, what it is, and then we'll get into some of the ethical issues that it raises with, uh, particularly in medicine. So the placebo effect is the notion that uh, when you think you're getting a good treatment, you can feel better. Uh, it's, it turns out to, uh, to be modest in the case of drugs. Uh, we, uh, we know that, for example, patients... Uh, who, uh, who get a uh, yellow tablet are less likely to be depressed. Uh, uh, this is a yellow sugar tablet. Uh, those who want to uh, reduce their anxiety, if you give them a green tablet, that'll, uh, that'll reduce their anxiety. We also know there's a placebo effect which applies with surgery. So uh, a majority of patients who uh, undergo surgery feel better. Uh, but that's true also even when it's what's called sham surgery uh, in which uh, with after patient consent, Half the patients uh, are cut open and then sutured closed again without any surgery being performed. Uh, the power of that white lab coat, white coat and the uh, uh, authority of the surgeon seems to con- convey quite a big placebo effect. So we want to strip that out in order to look at the true effect of the intervention. Okay. And to get that to happen, um, there are, it raises some interesting ethical questions because, as you mentioned, sham surgery sort of... Um, I guess at least culturally, it's, it seems scary, if not raising genuine ethical questions, that I might go to the doctor and the doctor might perform a surgery on me that is really just opening up my body, you know, I guess popping a cold one and then sewing it shut. I'm aware that's not how that happens. But it's sort of, I guess, it terrifies us because it, it changes the way that we, that we have this construction of how medicine works um, that, I guess... Um, destroys this effect that we get from the placebo. Could you talk about some of the the actual ethical checks that go behind sham surgery? Because this seems like something that confused a lot of people and mm. that actually, if people better understood and didn't didn't misunderstand, be able to have better outcomes. So uh, sham surgery uh, occurs in instances in which uh, surgeons aren't sure whether or not the surgery is better than the next available alternative, such as, for example, physical therapy uh, in in recovery. Uh, And what happens is uh, a very rigorous ethical procedure. So uh, the patient is told that because they're not sure whether the the surgery works, um, they can opt in to a, a sham surgery trial. Uh, if they're in the sham surgery, 
uh, trial, then there's a 50% chance they'll get the actual procedure, a 50% chance that they'll uh, receive a uh, the, the easily easy listening music, the anaesthetic and uh, the slices and sutures, but without actually getting the surgery itself. Uh, a surprisingly large share of patients consent to this, and that, so they actually uh, they have nurses go back and ask them again just to be absolutely sure, and they get them to sign forms. Uh, but it's really important because it's finding, for example, with operations such as the meniscectomy, which is uh, a knee surgery that's performed millions of times a year, uh, that for regular middle-aged patients, it doesn't seem to be any more effective than sham surgery. And that's also true of, of a range of other uh, common surgical procedures uh, which are, uh, involve significant recovery times for patients, but also huge expense for us in the community, Sydney. So it's really important that we find out whether these surgeries work and, and when they don't, that we take those resources and deploy them elsewhere. I guess the, the ethics of that are the more scarier part. But yes, I can clearly see how, how valuable that would be. Speaking of but why do you, why do you think it's why are you concerned it's unethical? If we're I, not sure that the surgery works, I would have thought it might you you could unethical not to do a rigorous evaluation of it and just to just to continue on based on nothing more than theory and eminence. Oh, to be clear for our audience, I don't believe it's unethical. My belief is that it feels scary. If that makes sense, it's yeah, one of those things. Yeah. That, that intuitively is scarier than it actually is if you think about it. I think that's right. Yeah. Although the um, the randomist surgeons I chatted to were some of the most modest surgeons I've ever met, and they made the point to me, said me that um, often in surgery uh, people regard aggressive surgeons as heroic and conservative surgeons as cowardly, and they said that. That's just completely mistaken. That that often the best thing to do is is not to not, not to operate rather than to operate. Uh, and sometimes randomised trials can bring a bit of science to that decision. It's easy to forget that for most of human history, you've been safer off not going to see the doctor than going to see the doctor. And it's only thanks to the randomised revolution that uh, that now the healthier option is to uh, is to go and see the doc. Uh, before that, things like bloodletting and leeches and uh, all manner of hocus pocus uh, meant you're actually much better staying away. Speaking of it being scarier to go to the doctor, would you tell our audience the story from the Vienna Hospital of Women Giving Birth? Ah, yes, this is one of my favourites. And so uh, there was a, a Vienna hospital in which uh, the uh, r uh, rate of deaths uh, when, uh, when patients were admitted uh, on days when surgeon surgeons were there seemed to be much higher than when they were admitted at times when the nurses and uh, midwives were on duty. Uh, and it wasn't immediately clear what was going on uh, because this is before the germ theory of disease. Uh, but it had turned out eventually that the surgeons were coming from conducting autopsies to delivering babies without properly washing their hands beforehand. Uh, and so the, uh, the death rate was considerably higher as a result of surgical inter intervention uh, than it was when the midwives and nurses were on duty. Uh, of course, the high-status profession, the, uh, the, 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 the doctors, uh, poo-pooed the idea that they could be causing these, uh, these problems. But the fact that the, you had a, a sort of uh, artificial randomised trial going on, uh, women were showing up uh, on midwife days or doctor days 
according to chance rather than because they were choosing to uh, meant that the results were uh, were pretty hard to uh, to dismiss uh, and ultimately helped lead to a movement of, uh, of doctors washing their hands, uh, which took much longer than it should have. Can you just to finish the story, tell our audience why it ended up taking 50 more years of them ignoring the trial and how it is that randomized trials became came to be seen as um, critical and more more necessary than they may have been in the past? Yeah, so I mean, the, the comparison I always enjoy is the one between anesthetics and hand washing uh, among surgery. Uh, anesthetics comes in and within a couple of years, all the surgeons are using them because it's much more pleasant to operate on a patient who is unconscious than a patient who is screaming their head off. Uh, but hand washing is conversely quite painful for, uh, for particularly using those early chlorine-based washes. Uh, and so doctors uh, are very resistant the, the work of people like Semmelweis, who uh, showed early on that they had a good effect for the patients, uh, but at the cost of uh, surgeons having uh, quite uh, painfully cracked hands, as I'm sure many of, uh, of your listeners have right now, as we've all been doing this additional uh, hand-washing to, uh, to protect ourselves against coronavirus. Thanks for that. That actually, I think, um, segues into my next thing I'd like to talk about, is can you... Tell some of the stories about resistance to RCTs and acceptance of RCTs. One of the critical points you argue in the book, at least in my reading, is that you should always push for RCTs and you should always take the risks necessary to do them. Um, you've talked about housing programs that had to turn people away randomly, which, again, they were, they were concerned to do, but turned out to be really helpful in evaluating the program. So can you talk about some of like the human side of putting these into practice and um, some wins and losses that go along with that? Yeah, so the Moving to Opportunity study, which is uh, carried out in the early 1990s, uh, was a, a sort of a naturally occurring ra randomized trial. Uh, researchers were interested to see what the effect of place was on uh, families' life chances. Uh, sociologists for many years had hypothesized that uh, it isn't just your personal resources, it's also your neighbours make a difference. Uh, and the Moving for Opportunity study took advantage of uh, an additional amount of funding that was available for uh, new housing vouchers that would require someone to move to a lower poverty neighbourhood. Uh, the researchers uh, ran a ran randomised trial and initially saw surprisingly little effect. Uh, there didn't seem to be much of an impact of moving to a low-poverty neighbourhood on outcomes like whether the parent worked uh, or, uh, or the uh, average test scores of the children. It was only a couple of decades after the trial had initially been conducted the researchers came back and started to ask the question, well, maybe the kids who were youngest when they'd moved had a different impact than the kids who were older. Maybe if you mo your family moved home when you were two, then it's a different impact on your life chances than if your family moved when you're 17. Uh, and indeed, when you look at it that way, uh, it turned out there was quite a big effect of, uh, of changing, uh, changing neighbourhood. Uh, this, uh, this reflects one of the other ways in which randomised trials have uh, increasingly powered up, which is by linking to uh, administrative data. Uh, governments hold a whole lot of uh, data on, on us uh, and randomised trials that are able to take advantage of tapping into those large databases with the consent of the participants uh, are able to really keep the costs down. 
So it's a mistake to think that every randomised trial needs to take decades and cost millions. Uh, in fact, a whole lot of low-cost randomised trials are now being done for tens or hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars uh, that provide really critical insights in social policy. Yeah, so randomised trials have a reputation for being more expensive, at least for young economists, because you have to find funding to fund them. They do cost more than, I guess, opening your laptop and running some regressions. But I would be interested if you could give our audience some sense of the types of cost-benefit analysis that come with these, because they're incredibly promising, and like the ratios of value to, to cost. Um, would you give our listeners a sense of that? Absolutely. Uh, so there's a uh, study called Perry Preschool, which looks at the impact of high-quality early childhood programs uh, on the life, cha- life chances of people in a, in a very disadvantaged community in America, starting in the 1960s. Uh, that found that for every dollar that was spent on the children, $7 uh, was saved, uh, largely through averted uh, felonies. Uh, those in the, who went through the program were much less likely to commit a felony than uh, those who didn't. Uh, but it's also important to, to remember that on the other, sc- other end of the scale, uh, randomised trials can be amazingly cheap and simple. Uh, we were talking before about self-experimentation. When I was coming up with the subtitle for Random Misters, uh, I ran a, a simple experiment on Google. I ran Google Ads with uh, all the various possible randomised trials, including uh, some that my editors liked, some that I liked, some that my mother suggested. Um, and uh, I found that uh, the worst performing title was Random Misters, How a Powerful Tool Changed Our World. Uh, the best performer is Random Esters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. Uh, it took about an hour to set up, cost me about $50, uh, and I had around 4,000 people uh, looking at the advertisements and, uh, and clicking or not clicking on them. Uh, so you can run really simple randomised trials, uh, and indeed companies like Netflix and Amazon and Google uh, are doing that all the time. Yes. So can you talk a little bit more about the the application of RCTs in the private sector and some of the pushback that came with that um, for customers not wanting to be experimented on and some of the places that that holds promise and potential issues that you see? Yeah, there's a huge number of firms that are now experimenting with what they call A-B testing. Uh, So eBay, Intuit, Humana, Chrysler, United Airlines, Lyft and Uber. Uh, There's one US executive who says that his firm has three cardinal rules. Don't, don't harass women, don't steal, and you've got to have a control group. Uh, in other words, you can lose your job for not having a control group. Uh, the, uh, one of my favourite studies is uh, one that Google did, trying to optimise the shade of blue that they would use for their, uh, their uh, toolbar. Uh, Marissa Mayer, who was then a vice president at Google, tested 40 different shades of blue, uh, and uh, they estimated that uh, because they're getting so many clicks, optimising the shade of blue adds about $200 million to Google's bottom line. Uh, And that illustrates another point, I think, Sydney, which is that Google has more data than anyone else on the planet. Yeah, 40,000 searches a second, 15 exabytes of data. But they still do it using random assignment because just having a lot of data doesn't allow you to tell you, doesn't allow you to discern whether or not things work. Uh, You actually need random assignment uh, in order to be able to tell the wheat from the chaff. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit more about, I know that there was a price experiment with Amazon um, and the limits of random trials. I'm attempting to see if we can get at the issue of, the, of in medicine, we consent to random trials. 
online, we don't, and it can sort of feel weird to be experimented on. That's right. So Amazon, uh, a decade or so ago, carried out an experiment in which it began randomly varying prices in order to see uh, what effect it would have. Uh, this happens all the time in stores. Uh, if you want to know why about half of all published prices end in nine, that's because randomized trials conducted by marketers have determined that prices ending in nine produce uh, uh, the highest profits for the firm. Uh, but when Amazon started doing it for exactly the same product, uh, effectively telling two customers who are otherwise identical they would pay, pay different prices for the same product, uh, they copped a significant consumer backlash. Uh, that led Amazon to promise that never again would they run these kinds of pricing experiments. Uh, what's amusing, however, is that uh, there are a whole range of third-party firms who operate on Amazon Marketplace with exactly that business model. So it's true that Amazon's own published prices uh, aren't, uh, aren't ex experiments uh, on their users, uh, but if you're on Marketplace, that rule no longer applies. And, and a whole lot of firms use Marketplace in order to work out uh, not only what, what uh, price works best, but also how to vary their description and uh, so to get it right, which photos uh, best uh, produce the most sales. Uh, these sort of experiments are happening all the time. Uh, pretty much any time you turn on your computer and use the internet, you're part of randomized trials. So you started with the example of marketers doing an RCT and coming up with the fact that all prices should end in nine. But as all prices start to end in nine, not just the ones they experimented on, it's possible the effect wears off. Could you elaborate more on these problems of general equilibrium effects, as we call them in economics, um, and ways that one might get around them or ways that they may limit RCTs? That's a great example, actually, of uh, general equilibrium effect. So uh, this is the idea, Sydney, for, for those of you readers, listeners who aren't uh, immediately familiar with it, uh, that's something that works for a small group might not scale up to a large group. Uh, so you might have... Uh, a, a job training program which helps the participants but at the expense of uh, the rest of society. Uh, one way of doing that is to do it at a large scale. There's a randomised trial which uh, uh, was uh, looking at the rollout of biometrically identified smart cards in India uh, which had a, a sample size of 19 million people uh, and because ultimately everyone in the state received a, a biometric smart card. It was able to look at not only at the impact on fraud or, and, and welfare uptake of those who received it, but also at these spillover effects. Uh, so the best randomised trials are, are operating at scale or, or have something else like a, a natural experiment to look at the uh, the overall aggregate effect in the population, these, these general equilibrium effects. Sometimes we're not, not as worried about them, uh, but, uh, but certainly there's cases in which you want to think about those, those spillovers potentially reducing the, uh, the true impact. Fair enough. It's just something to consider because all tools have their limitations. So changing gears a little bit, there was a story, and given that it's an election year, I'll ask you to tell it, about children in uh, East Rock, Connecticut, who were having a little political experiment done on them during trick-or-treat. Would you be so kind as to share that? I found it amusing. So this is uh, one of my uh, friends, Dean Carlin, who uh, is a, an inveterate randomister. Uh, I suspect if they'd given the Nobel Prize last year to uh, four people, then Dean Carlin would have uh, uh, joined Michael Kramer, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther DeFlo in, uh, in getting the Nobel Prize. Uh, he mostly does, uh, does sort of high-powered, important experiments in uh, 
development economics, but uh, when he was in a neighbourhood where there were hordes of children hitting the front door for uh, for Halloween, uh, just in election season, he couldn't resist seeing whether or not uh, children would go to uh, the side of the house that was decorated in uh, in Republican colours. Uh, this is in a highly democratic na- neighbourhood, uh, so he could start from the assumption that most children were supporters of uh, Democrat, the Democratic candidate. Um, so he did up one side of the house with uh, John McCain mater- materials, the other side with uh, Barack Obama materials, uh, and then saw how much more candy you had to offer to children in order to get them to go to the Republican side rather than the Democratic side. Uh, it's a, a lovely lovely little example on, on, on working out the uh, de- degree to which uh, a little bit of extra candy will help children overcome their, uh, their partisan hue. That's amusing. It really is. But it gets me to something, I guess, that's a little bit, a little bit scarier or bigger or more, more, I guess, more worthy of consideration is that if these little behavioral quirks that we can identify with RCTs change what we do, is there a concern that it's not just people who are attempting to do good with or good for us are using these? And is there a way to to counteract that effect? Or is that just going to be part of living in a world with much more access to data, much more access to data literate people, much more computing power, etc.? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we should be uh, careful about the notion that randomised trials are always good. Um, Just like any other tool, they can be uh, misused by people seeking to uh, to do do the wrong thing. Uh, In in this case, I think it's vital to ensure that uh, people are uh, getting informed consent any time a researcher is looking to publish a study. Uh, I think it's also vital to, uh, to ensure uh, that there's uh, pre-registration of trials because there's been some instances of, uh, of people cherry-picking results afterwards. And increasingly that's being systematised in uh, the social sciences in a way that it has been in medicine uh, for, uh, for, for many years. Uh, but again, building a better feedback loop is is fundamentally uh, taking a, a more modest approach to the world. It's recognising the limits of our ignorance and uh, and where uh, theory can take us and and where theory stops be- stops being useful. So I think of randomised trials very much as being where modesty meets numeracy. Fair. So you talked about a little bit earlier about your friend Dean Carlin, and as we're talking about the limits of theory, particularly as an economist, it was it was a big deal when Esther and Abhijit got the Nobel Prize. Not just can you talk a little bit about the shift in the social sciences disciplines and where you see this this going? And um, yeah, just what that what this means for for people who are building the theories that we read about in the newspaper and how that might look different in 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I mean, the, the best of randomised trials don't throw theory aside. In fact, they're very closely tied to theory. So in a way, it used to be the case that economists, uh, when they wanted to test their theories, would go out and look for a natural experiment in the world, which sometimes wasn't a particularly good test of the theory. What's great about randomised trials is you can tailor the test to, to be quite an accurate representation of the underlying theory. Uh, so, for example, you might have a notion that uh, in order to encourage business startup rates, 
uh, you need a combination of access to capital and know-how. Uh, to do that, to test that, you can run a, a two-way randomised trial in which some people get nothing, some people get training, some people get cash, some people get cash and training. And that allows you to, to test whether or not the, uh, uh, the, the ability to start a business relies on both capital and training. Uh, so we need this, this careful testing, not just of, of programs and ideas, you know, does, are people more likely to open something in a red envelope than a blue envelope, uh, but also deeper economic concepts. And I think that's the, the real success of the randomised trials revolution, where it's building up our deep understanding of how the world works, uh, not just giving a, a ticker across to a particular program. On the issue of building a deeper understanding of how the world works, you have um, a phrase that you've used several times, and it's a chapter of your book. It's called Building a Better Feedback Loop. Could you give our audience a little insight into how someone who is not an economist, not a scientist, maybe at all, could build a better feedback loop in their own life to solve maybe more mundane problems or more person-specific problems or to just, I guess, live a better life? Yeah, so there's no reason you can't do randomized trials on yourself if you uh, there's a particular tablet that you uh, you uh, wonder whether or not it'll make you feel better each day, then you can uh, take, one, take one on random days and uh, note down how you feel. Uh, if there's particular foods that you're, you're not quite sure about, uh, come up with a random schedule, write yourself a, a, a toss a coin for each day, each day of the month, uh, and then try eating the food on certain days, not eating on other days, and see how it makes you uh, feel or look. Uh, but also just be aware that a lot of the research that is published, um, uh, frighteningly, some of the even work that's published in top journals uh, can be wrong if it's not based on a good underlying identification strategy. So the randomised trials revolution is moving us away from uh, the notion of uh, what they call the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion, uh, towards getting evidence uh, based on uh, really rigor rigorous counterfactual, in which we're sure that, as you said before, because the two groups, ex-ante, are, uh, are the same, uh, if we see a difference uh, ex-post between the treatment and control group, uh, we know that it's the treatment that's making a difference. Uh, that's been broadly accepted in medicine for uh, decades, even centuries, but it's only now starting to come into other areas like business and social science. So as it drips its way into business and social science, I think me and the rest of our audience are hoping that it will also drift its way into public policy and our political process. Could you talk about your, how your um, background as a scientist and your understanding of randomized trials and your belief in their promise affects your work as a politician and some of the issues or maybe pushback or celebration that you've gotten for attempting to bring this type of science into, into political work? Yeah, so I'm a strong supporter of randomised trials. I've talked my colleagues ear off about them. And indeed, uh, when we went to the last election in Australia, uh, we were unsuccessful ultimately, uh, but my party, the Labor Party, took a policy of creating an evaluator general, uh, which would have had a, a mandate to do more randomised trials uh, right across government uh, in order to get a better sense as to what works and what doesn't. Uh, that follows the example of uh, what's what's been done in other countries, from Sweden to uh, the Uni United States uh, to to Canada to New Zealand. Uh, a notion that we need in government uh, a little bit more scientifically uh, driven driven approaches to uh, to problems, 
particularly when there's a broad agreement as to what we're trying to achieve. Uh, so if there's a recognition that uh, a high-quality test captures what we're aiming to achieve in school uh, or that we, uh, we unambiguously want to increase the school attendance rate, then having settled on that outcome, let's now rigorously use the best scientific approaches to test what works to get us there. Is there pushback against the idea of building an evaluator general, or is this just something no one has thought about before? I can't think of good reasons not to do it. Uh, that's right. I, I suppose the uh, the pushback comes sometimes from people who say these problems are so urgent, we just have to get on and, and act on them straight away, uh, to which my response is, well, they've been urgent for uh, decades now. We've we've needed to act on them straight, straight away for decades now, but we've been getting it wrong, so let's uh, let's focus on, on getting it right. Uh, the other pushback that comes is a question of ethics. Uh, how can we deny uh, a needy person a potentially effective solution? Uh, and so uh, getting uh, that, that ethical piece right is important, making sure that those implementing the randomised trial uh, are aware of why we're excluding half the people from receiving the treatment. Uh, you don't, uh, you're not going to get a good randomised trial if you don't have proper buy-in from everyone involved. Okay. I mean, that all makes sense, and I'm glad that it is coming to policy. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time today, which I really appreciate. Would you tell your audi- our audience a little bit um, more about where they can find you, listen to your podcast, also um, what you're working on next? This is our, our traditional final question at New Books Network, um, so that our audience continue to follow you if they enjoyed what they heard today. Fabulous. Well, uh, I'm easily uh, findable at the uh, modestly named andrewlee.com, A-N-D-R-E-W-L-E-I-G-H.com. Uh, I send out a uh, monthly newsletter, which people can sign up to there, or they can listen to uh, uh, the podcast, uh, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, which is on uh, uh, iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and all the other uh, good uh, uh, places you find your, find your podcasts. Um, the next project is, uh, is, is of course, uh, working with my parliamentary colleagues on uh, holding the government to, uh, to account through this sort of unprecedented uh, period in which we're, uh, we're living at the moment. It really is uh, an, an extraordinary time to be in public life as, as we watch the uh, coronavirus crisis unfold as, as both a, a health and an economic crisis. Uh, my colleague Joshua Gans and I have just put out a book called Innovation and Equality, uh, How to Create a Future That's More Star Trek Than Terminator. And I'm very, very much thinking about those issues and, and how we uh, manage to, uh, to have a society that is both uh, more egalitarian and more innovative, uh, which I think are, are qualities that are sorely needed today. That's excellent, Andrew. Thank you very much for coming on our podcast. And um, as always, to our audience, uh, stay posted. There'll be more new books and economics coming soon.